0: This is our last day in this first cycle of the close application of mindfulness to the body. So, as I mentioned before, we'll have one week, kind of nice, neatly works out for eight weeks. One week for the body, next week, Monday through Saturday, for feelings, then mind, then phenomena. And then we'll go through the cycle all over again, but the second time, rather than having the primary emphasis, be on these three marks of existence: impermanence, dukkha, non-self. In the second cycle, then we'll really be focusing more on the theme of emptiness. So we'll have our we'll have a full eight weeks here. But as we wrap up this week for the close application of mindfulness on the body, some just central themes of this overall practice may be worth noting. And I do find the, how do you say, the union or the bringing together of this Sautrantic view, really classic Buddhist philosophical view, very much in accordance with Abhidhamma, which again, there is the wisdom teachings corresponding to or associated with the sutra teachings and so forth, um, that here, this primary emphasis is simply on these three marks of existence. And the aim of this is to see simply what is real, what is real in contra and real in the Santarite sense, real means the real actually does things. It's there. It has causal efficacy. It has influence. It arises independent upon causing conditions. It in turn gives rise to further effects. And so this whole nexus, this whole network of caus- causality, or pratisa samupada, dependent origination. The aim here. And, I, and I, I note this, I mean, it's just a marvelous union of the teachings from the t- Indo-Tibetan tradition, the Sanskrit-Tibetan tradition, from the Pali, seeing how the two, these two waves come together and the interference pattern, so to speak, between the two. is really quite marvelous. I think hardly anybody's done it yet. But it's really quite a celebration. Um, so what's the point of these four applications of mindfulness is what do you finally see? What do you finally see when you're really getting a clear vision when you're seeing with the eyes of vision? And the Tibetan term is chö 去咋m, you're seeing, you're, you're seeing simply phenomena. Simply phenomena. Now, what does that mean, simply? Well, whenever you see the 去咋m, simply, then you can ask, what's being cut out? What do you say, what, what is being eliminated by saying simply phenomena? And what's being eliminated here is the conceptual projections upon. Okay? And so it is very, very common. Or see for yourself whether this is common. This is so radically empirical that in our relationship, in our attitude, our way of viewing our own bodies, our own temperament, other people, our jobs, our environment, our possessions, and so forth, it's ever so easy to be superimposing, not deliberately, but rather unconsciously, superimposing a sense of more stability, more immutability, more durability that is in fact there, just a sheer projection. But then, not just projecting, but then unconsciously conflating the projection with the reality so we can't tell the difference any longer. And that's called confusion. There's a reality there, but then we fuse it together, confuse, with that which we're projecting. We're seeing that which is by nature impermanent as being permanent. And why? Because of a cognitive hyperactivity disorder. And that is we're superimposing something that isn't there and then conflating it with something that is there. Now, this happens all over the place. In so many cases, psychology... Called transference, transference where we'll be transferring experiences and so forth from one person, let's say a father, and this is trans- this transferred over to a lover, or to a friend, or to a d- dharma teacher, and what have you. Transferring over and then conflating what we're projecting with what's what's actually there, and then of course becoming confused. It's a perfect term, right? So, transference, very specific thing in psychology, gives rise to a lot of problems, unnecessary problems stemming from literally confusion. But this one's really deep, and it's quite ubiquitous. It's not just with one's father or mother or what have you, but this way of viewing reality where we're really seeing things, assuming things, apprehending things, as being more durable, static, unchanging than in fact they are, and then being shocked when reality shatters that illusion. You know, How could he die? He was so young. How could she get sick? She was so healthy. How could I be getting old? I used to be young a, a long time ago. And so forth. You know, but Being shocked again and again. Oh, I must stop. I can't believe it. I must be dreaming. Right? That kind of thing. And that's just for one. And then, big one, enormous impact. I mean, talk about a revolution. And that is the ways we ever so often, as we are seeking happiness, find some object, a person, a place, some idea, what have you, and then imputing that is that will make me happy or this is making me happy and the finger comes out this is what's this is what's holding me together it's my guru it's my girlfriend it's my boyfriend it's my 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 job it's my status that's what's holding me together that's what's doing that's what's doing it for me it's a delusion it's a delusion and so that's the second point of dukkha not misapprehending not superimposing, here's the source of my happiness. And then, lo and behold, then, surprise, surprise, getting disillusioned with the spouse. You know, After being married a year or two years, what have you, oh, you're not what you cracked up to be. You didn't turn out as well as I thought. You are supposed to just bring me happiness every single day, and frankly, you're not living up to the job description. It's crazy. But then, I think that's probably the root of most divorces. And the root of most crazy marriages is thinking, you're my better half. You're, you're, you complete me. You complete me. As if there's somebody that only got 50% of a Buddha nature. And the other Buddha nature is kind of wandering <laughs> around like a stray dog. Where's the other part of my Buddha nature? It's really crazy. You know? And so there, to wake up and smell the roses. You know, phenomena are phenomena. People are simply people. They're not the source of your happiness. They're probably not even the source of their happiness. <laughs> I and mean, most of them don't have a bounty to you know to spill over you know just slush over. I've got a surplus fund of happiness. Have some of mine. You know. Some people yes, but most people not so much. And so this conflating of our expectations, as the Dalai Lama said, immortally in my mind when he first led me in my first long retreat. Expectation is the foundation of failure. You might want to remember that one. It has a lot of mileage to it. Uh, expectation about relationship. Expectation about getting a certain education, a certain job, a certain acquisition, a certain status, and so forth and so on. And saying, ah, dukkha, I was wrong. Phenomena are just phenomena. They're not actually sources of happiness. And in fact, the appearances themselves are not actually a source of unhappiness either. It's all built into the system. It's how am I apprehending reality? And then this final one. And on on the one hand, it seems so superficial, easy, totally easy to understand, and that is, if I'm attached to, if I really I take seriously, this is my cell phone, and then it's damaged, then I really feel troubled by that, right? But the more that I simply say, in fact, the Tibetans don't even have a, say, a, a way of saying, what is it? I, I have. Well, the, the, the way, I have, I have a cell phone? Of course they can say that, but do you know how they say it? not a cell phone, you. The cell phone is present for me. How substantial does that s- strike you? Nala, with respect to me, sofon you. A cell phone is present for me. And then it's not. But the notion that I have it, that somehow there's something there, something more substantial than it's for me to use, because we've agreed upon that, you know, it's not there even in the language. Of course, Tibetans can be as possessive, selfish, greedy as anybody else. But the language suggests already. That the notion of ownership is not built in. The simple point, and that is, insofar as I'm identifying with my gender, my race, my religion, my nationality, my ethnic group, and so forth and so on, people of my height, of my eye color, people named Alan, you know, and people say people named Alan are really blah blah blah, you know. Then if if I'm identifying with that name, I think. Or those northern hemisphere people. Just ask the Australians. You know. Those northern hemisphere people. Graham knows, you know. you know. And if I'm identifying with that, then I can suffer. So whatever we're identifying with, we're just saying we're kind of sticking our chin out into reality and saying, "Hit me." You know. I'm a northern hemisphere person, and I'm ready to suffer for any disparaging comments about northern hemisphere people. You know, it can be anything, and so. So the the so on on one level it's easy. So just withdraw all these tentacles of I am and mine and personal identity and ownership and possession of it. Just withdraw it, give it up. After all, it's just a projection in the first place. What you've projected you can unproject. Right? But then we get close and personal. Then we get inside our skin and inside <laughs> our minds, where it doesn't seem to be mere conventional. Right? If your knee hurts, it's not like oh, well, I'll just decide it's not my knee anymore. Anybody want a broken knee? It's not so easy. Or you have emotions coming up or some really troubling memories coming up. and say, well, somebody want my memory? I don't want it anymore. I'd like to just release that one. And so when it gets inside the skin, these closely held skandhas, then it gets a bit more serious. But we can ask, is it really fundamentally different? And that's to be asked, not with a lot of cogitation and reflection. There's nothing wrong with that but more probing into, probing into, really investigating closely. In what sense, how is it that this appears to be mine? How does this get to me? How, do, how, do these, how does it get in, get me in its grip? Or is that only because I have it in my grip of grasping? So the point here is as one closely applies mindfulness, this is really this whole, I would say, this whole first turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, Close application of mindfulness is the core of a practice. It's really an exercise in radical empiricism. Coming right down, scaling off all the dead skin of projections, conceptualizations, superimpositions, and so forth, and getting down to what's real, and what's real is what you can directly perceive. And what may, may be existent, but not real, is the ownership of this cell phone, and then we have all the other junk that we superimpose that's not even true at all. So we have three levels. We have projections that simply have no truth, there is no reality to them. There's no truth at all. Don't even give an example, but, you know we, we just make mistakes. We make projections, we exaggerate and so forth. Just happened in the Republican convention. There was a lot of that. Just saying things that actually have no reality at all, just, you know, things that seemed like they good thing to say at the time, but with no basis in reality. And then things like, this is my cell phone. Okay, yes, that's true. Okay, yes, it exists. But it's only conventional. And then things that are not just a convention, such as, this is solid. I can think it's fluid. I can think whatever I like. But nevertheless, there's something here that I'm directly perceiving. And I don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. It's hard. Right? So distinguishing that and seeing through all of this in this radically empirical sense of seeing things simply as phenomena. see them as phenomena. So it's not simply bare attention like a woodchuck just, you know, just picking up sensations, mindlessly just you know, a little sensory detector. It's, it is attending very closely to your reality, but with wisdom, with insight, with knowing what you're seeing, right? Knowing the impermanent is impermanent, knowing the dukkha as dukkha, knowing the non-self as non-self, then that seeing, that's much more than bare attention. That's direct perception imbued with insight knowing things as they are, peeling off the layers by this close application of mindfulness, peeling off the layers of all the stuff we pile on in daily life. So there's something quite fascinating about this. I mean, so many fascinating things, and some of them quite diametrically opposed to the trajectory of Western civilization going back more than 2,000 years. And what I'm referring to here is something that really saturated pretty much the first three, at least 200 and more like 300 years of the rise of modern science, let's say since Copernicus. And that was a virtually unquestioned assumption by the people, these natural philosophers or scientists, seeking to understand the nature of creation. And the overwhelming assumption from Copernicus right through Newton and right through James Clerk Maxwell, late 19th century, as a devout Christian, was that there is a supernatural agent there, somebody who stands absolutely outside of nature, outside of nature, and creates the natural world. And not only creates it, but imposes laws upon it, which we then call the laws of nature, and the moral laws, Ten Commandments, and so forth and so on, not only so creates it, and then superimposes the laws, and then also intervenes, supernaturally intervenes, and then punishes and rewards, and so, wow, somebody's really in charge here. And then the the natural philosopher's having this aspiration, this apotheosis, as I mentioned before, wanting to know what is this natural world look like from a supernatural perspective, an outside perspective, an absolutely objective perspective, God's own perspective. And that's not speculation. They actually said this. right? So this was very much of a theological quest, especially for the earlier ones, including Newton. He wrote the last 25 years of his life much more theology than he did physics. And so... There's something that just underpins the rise of, well, Western civilization since, well, going back to the Jews, certainly through the Christian tradition, so that everything is stemming from a supernatural source, and there is a supernatural perspective on the natural world. That really undergrids most of modern science. And then together with this, here we are, we creatures, we human beings that were created on the sixth day, and the notion that we also have a supernatural core, our souls, our immortal souls, you know, that carry on from this lifetime to some eternal destiny. Actually, in Roman Catholicism, limbo. Mm, what are the four? The limbo, and then there's another one, the the purgatory. Thank you, limbo, purgatory, heaven, and hell. You have got four destinations, and so, but that's it. But in other words, you're on for a long ride, and that which carries on is supernatural. It's your immortal soul. that's your you know, your immortal soul standing outside of, and then the question is, does this immortal soul have free will or not? This separate entity that stands apart from the body, apart from the mind, does this entity, you, have free will? Well, that's an awfully big issue. And the stakes are extremely high, because if you don't have free will, and, you know, and God sends people to hell, that's a really raw deal. I mean, that really cosmically, galactically stinks, that somebody would create somebody and say, I'm creating you, and you don't have any say in the matter, but I'm just going to punish you forever, just because I kind of felt like it. That's, to say that's mean is like really an understatement. So the stakes are very high. We, we better have free will. Otherwise, he's really a stinker. I mean, a cosmic stinker to do that to sentient beings who had no choice in the matter at all. It's tough enough to live a fi- finite little life a few decades, and then go off to eternal hell because you you screwed up, that's pretty tough. But if you get eternal punishment for not even screwing up at all because you were programmed to screw up, that really stinks. And so the stakes are very high. So we got this supernatural God, we have a supernatural soul, and then working out these two, you know, the dynamic between these supernaturals. Well, guess what? In Buddhism, neither one of those is anywhere on the horizon. No supernatural super ego that creates the entire universe and stands outside of it and has a supernatural absolutely objective perspective nowhere no evidence and nowhere posited and then how about a supernatural little god namely you know the person the ego the soul not that either so we've just solved two problems with one stroke how what a relief and what we're left with then is not even any aspiration to gain a supernatural, absolutely objective view on the nature of reality, independent of human experience, because that perspective is never even posited in the first place. And we no, never even really worry about free will as some absolute ontological entity. But rather, practically speaking, when are we more free and when are we less free? And that's a totally practical question. As I said before, between psychosis and being you know, an arhat, that's a pretty big bandwidth of more and more and more freedom. So, this theme that now crops up in some of the most delicious modern physics, namely quantum cosmology, the theme of observer participancy, the notion that it is completely futile to try to understand the nature of the universe independent of all systems of measurement, because the universe is always rising relative to systems of measurement, which means it's always a role of observer participancy. Well, that's just core Buddhism. Not that they got it from Buddhism, but that is core Buddhism all the way through that the subject and object are always entangled. What we're experiencing is always entangled with our experience of it. And so in the midst of that, this then is a thoroughly naturalistic way of viewing reality. When in this Satipatthana, it said, view things as chitam, as mere phenomena. It's saying as purely natural. No supernatural entities out there who are creating it or doing it to you, no supernatural entity in here that somehow stands outside of nature and is experiencing it, it's all within the web, within the network, within the matrix of dependent origination. And in the midst of that, there are, of course, individual sentient beings, people and so forth. This is my cell phone. This is my hair. These are my thoughts. All of that has a certain relative truth to it. But the point here, once again, and then in summary, is just simply to see that which is real as real and not conflate it with our projections upon it. So it's quite simple. So I know there have been a lot of teachings, and you can study commentaries to the Satipatthana Sutra, and you can make it more complicated. But it really is coming back to closely applying attention in this spirit of radical empiricism to look ever so closely at the phenomena that arise in all of the six domains of experience, and to see them as they are, not confused by our conceptual superimpositions, especially pertaining to impermanence, dukkha, and non-self, to see them as they are. Right? So, quite simple. When we, just a little sneak preview. When we go into the second turning of the wheel of dharma, the perfection of wisdom, which is then systematized, for example, by Nagarjuna in the Madhyamaka, the middle Way view, then now the theme is really to realize the ultimate nature of phenomena. Not simply whether they they belong to a personal self or whether they are by nature pleasure, whether they're permanent and so forth, but kind of an ontological probe. How finally do phenomena exist? Do they exist by their own intrinsic nature, by their own inherent identity? Do they or do they not? And now a different type of methodology is going to be needed. Because you don't, most people, I mean there can be rare individuals, but most people will not get that simply by closely applying mindfulness to appearances. And why? It's actually quite simple. And that is, if you're in the midst of a, if a, of a lucid dream, you're dreaming and you know you're dreaming, and you're closely applying mindfulness to the appearances, the appearances still seem to be arising from their own side. You, you attend to them very, very closely, but they still lie to you. Or, to give the analogy in in, in waking light on on the Buddhist path, when you become an Arya Bodhisattva. So you've gained direct realization of emptiness. I mean, it's pretty powerful. And you're a Bodhisattva. Direct realization, Arya Bodhisattva. And then you come out of your meditation on emptiness, and you attend to the world around you. And how do things appear, Birgit? As if from their own side, things still appear really there from their own side, even though the arya knows they are not, they still lie to him or her. The appearances are still there. In other words, you're not going to realize emptiness just by att- attending very closely to the appearances, because they lie to you the whole way through. Even after you have realized emptiness, they still lie. They still appear in a way that they are not, just as even after you become lucid in a dream. The lamas still appear to be from their own side. You know they're not, but they still appear that way. Right? So then we need something more than this radical empiricism or the very close inspection of just the phenomena themselves. Then we need really the eye of wisdom, this ontological probe. That's when we start probing into the nature of exactly how is it the phenomena emerge? What is their nature? How did it dissolve, do they really exist by their own nature, or do they exist or to the extent that they exist in relationship to the subject, what's the nature of that relationship? so so that second one is driven by intelligence that second turning of the wheel of dharma that perfection of wisdom the Nagarjuna the Madhyamaka is not just paying close attention closely applying mindfulness that's why he has all of his syllogisms he's taking your intelligence and say we just need you to max out your intelligence use all of it perfect it develop it better 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 because you're going to need it for the second turning of the wheel of dharma you really need all the intelligence you can because it's you can't just take appearances at face value and believe them. And then we come to the third turning of the will of dharma, which we'll just allude to now and then, during these eight weeks, or now seven weeks to come. Turning to Buddha nature, to rikpa, to pristine awareness, to Tatakagarbha. And here's a, here's a, here's, here are teachings about the ultimate dimension of consciousness that transcends all concepts, transcends all words, all imagination, all symbols, totally transcended, even, and it's most clearly, I think, elucidated in the Dzogchen tradition, the Mahamudra tradition, but even transcends the conceptual demarcations of existence and non-existence. Buddha nature, does it exist or not? In even that, you're already trapped, because you're trying to capture it within a conceptual category of existence versus non-existence. And it's untrappable. Untrappable. So to gain a direct realization of rikpa, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, Tathagagarbha, Dharmakaya, well, it's certainly not just by looking at appearances. That won't do it. And it's not simply by an ontological probe trying to find out how do phenomena exist by their own inherent nature or not. That won't do it. It has to be another kind of faculty. And so it's with the perfection of wisdom taking our faculty of that we already have, and perfecting it, using it to the hilt, that you gain realization of emptiness. It's through the close application of mindfulness with introspection and closely, discerningly, wisely, attending to appearances that we realize impermanence, dukkha non-self. But when it comes to Buddha nature, it's not just a close application of mindfulness. That won't do it. And it's not simply using your intelligence. Inadequate. So how then can you know rikpa. How then can you know that dimension of awareness? And the only way that dimension of awareness can be known is by itself. That is only rikpa can know, know, know rikpa. The only way of knowing it is self-knowing, because it doesn't know itself. It doesn't know rikpa as an object. The knowing of rikpa is always, by necessity, non-dual. It's rikpa realizing itself. So the, the path is the end, is the ground. And I would say if we had to find a word in English, it would be just kind of your, your deepest dimension of intuition. Beyond mere perception, beyond mere reason and inference and intelligence, but kind of the ultimate mode of knowing, which is vidya, which is rikpa in Sanskrit. And vidya simply means knowing. It's knowing on that deepest level, so it's not going to be irrational or anti-rational. It'll be trans-rational, and this is why a person like Naropa, who was already brilliant—I mean, he was a consummate scholar, tremendous teacher, great, great author, great pundit—knew right? everything. One of the greatest in what the eleventh century or so. But for him to realize rikpa after being already so accomplished, for him to then break through not only appearances, but break through the limitations even of his brilliant intelligence, his wisdom, then when Tilopa came to him to lead him to that breakthrough, to, to the deepest dimension of awareness, he didn't do it by debating with him or giving one more text. You haven't read this text, have you? Read this one, and that'll do it for you. It wasn't a text. It wasn't debating. It wasn't attend closely to appearances. It was a smack in the face with a sandal. Transrational. Transrational. You find that really clearly in the Zen tradition, in the Chan tradition, where they're, again, seeking to break through to that. Right? So it's quite neat. Radical radical empiricism, intelligence come to full-blown perfection of wisdom, and then Rikpa realizing Rikpa. And the avenue is intuition, or it says in the teachings on the third turning of the wheel of Dharma that you realize Buddha nature or tatatik tata by way of shraddha, faith. You realize by way of faith. Well, faith is another word for intuition. Because it's not just faith in somebody else's authority or the grandeur of a tradition or the magnificence of a certain text and so forth and so on. Faith here is not faith in something else or someone else. It is faith, but it's faith that doesn't simply culminate in belief, but faith that goes transrational and opens up an, a dimension of reality that you can't, you can't access simply by attending to appearances or even with the power of your intelligence. So there's the larger framework for these four applications of mindfulness. So we have just one more session in this cycle. With the close application of mindfulness to the body, but bearing in mind, very important, that is the close application of mindfulness to all of the five domains of sensory experience by, wi- by means of which we access or are able to apprehend the physical world. Okay. So the four elements within, the four elements without. Central theme, which I've not mentioned yet, so I have to mention it because it's very important and incredibly useful also, and that is we have this close application of mindfulness to the body internally. We've been doing that. What we haven't been doing yet, and this won't be the theme for this session either, because it's not so practical when you're just sitting quietly on your cushion, but the close application of mindfulness to the body externally, where, and I have alluded to this, when we're attending to another person, to their physical presence, because that's what, after all, that's how we attend, is by way of their body, facial expression and all of that, that close application of mindfulness, that full attendance. I cited Lawrence Freeman yesterday, the greatest gift you can give. So that close attendance of application of mindfulness to the body externally, and that is attending to somebody else's body. Right. And that is attending to this. This is the outer display of this person, and so I'm giving you my full attention and attending to what you can display that I can actually directly perceive, and that's facial expression, tone of voice, physical activity, and so forth and so on, so externally, and then the culmination of that, and then we'll go to the meditation, internally, externally, and then you might recall, internally and externally. And that is when we're engaging with a person, not simply, for example, when I'm in an airport. I mentioned this before, I think. I spend a lot of time in airports, which means waiting for, for airplanes, or at least sitting before the airplane takes off. And I'll just often, you know, just set everything aside, just simply watch people passing through. Observing people, and I'm not really much of a participant. That is, I'm not trying to engage with them. They're just passing by. I'm just attending to well, wow, a lot of people here, right? And so I'm simply attending to the other people externally. But so on the one hand, on the other hand, for example, this afternoon, Chudun came to my room. We had we had a conversation. So there we are, one on one, talking back and forth. And so as I'm speaking, I'm I'm attending to her, responding to my words, and then she's speaking, and I'm I'm sensing my responding to hers that she can be observing me. So now it's not just me observing her externally. It's me observing her facial expression, tone of voice, behavior, and so forth in relationship to what I'm bringing as I'm responding in relationship to what she's bringing. And so there's a very nice word for this in modern philosophy and psychology. It's systems, systems theory. And that is, I'm not just looking at this person, this entity here, or just that entity there. But now there's something that is unique that wasn't there already. Is Alan Wallace arising relative to Chudun? Chudun rising relative to Alan Wallace? Only once in a while, because normally she's rising relative to herself or other people, and so forth and so on. But when we had our fifty-minute conversation, then she's rising relative to me. I'm rising relative to her. Something unique is taking place, and it's over when she leaves the room. And that was Chudun a la Alan, Alan a la Chudun, arising dynamically in interrelationship with each other in a conversation. Of course, right? But then observing that. Observing that whole system taking place, that I'm not just observing her. she's responding to me. She may be observing me, but it's not just me, it's me responding to her. And so that system there. that's right there in the Buddhist discourse on it. It's hardly ever even mentioned, as far as I can tell. And yet there it is, and it comes for every single one of the four applications of mindfulness, for the body and right on through, attending internally, externally, internally and externally. It's really brilliant it's really brilliant and it's simple it's simple but then we see the pratityasamutpada the dependent origination of other people's behavior vis-a-vis our behavior our behavior vis-a-vis other people's behavior my feelings your feelings my my thoughts aspirations memories and so forth vis-a-vis yours and this whole codependent dependent arising, arising 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 quite amazing so there it is i hope that gives some impression some intimation of the tremendous richness of this practice. And the richness really comes not from some text, which is only a, you know, a few pages long. The Satipatthana Sutra is not long. But the richness comes just from the richness of our own existence here. And this is like, and what the Buddha is doing is he's giving us a bright light. In fact, he's not even giving us that, because the bright light is our own awareness. He's not giving us that. But he's giving teachings here to enable us to shine that, that light of mindfulness clearly, discerningly, sharply upon these different aspects of our own existence here and our relationship with the world around us so that it becomes clear and we move from the darkness of delusion into the clarity of awakening. It's very cool. Oh, yeah. So we'll have one session. I'll use a few words and not really much new this time, if anything, but kind of a summing up as our last session for this cycle on the close application of mindfulness to the body. The aspiration to awaken, to see reality as it is, to put to the test of experience the theme that the only the truth indeed will make us free. Let your awareness slip into and permeate the field of the body, settling your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and calm and balance your mind for a little while a way of mindfulness of breathing. Open all of your five sense doors. That is of the five physical senses, of course. But let your awareness be still, as free of grasping as possible. Quietly, unmovingly, and non-discursively Attend to the comings and goings, the appearances and disappearances, a phenomena within the visual, the auditory, the tactile. From moment to moment, attend to what is real. that which you can directly perceive, which arises in dependence upon causes and conditions, substantial causes, cooperative conditions, and in turn gives rise to effects, ever fresh, unprecedented, momentary. And as you observe these appearances, each one arising within its own causal nexus, Observe closely. Does anything here belong to anything else? Does anything belong to you? And is there within this field of experience anything that is you? Are you anywhere to be found? You as the agent, you as the observer. appearances of shapes and colors, of sounds, of tactile sensations, are they anything more than mere empty appearances with no substance, no core, nothing really there absolutely, just the appearances themselves, appearances arising from the space of awareness, some call the alaya, the substrate perhaps even nothing more than configurations of that space that emerge from the space, crystallize and dissolve back into that space. If in this relative context, then, the emptiness of your own substrate, the emptiness of the space of awareness, taking on form, very much like a dream, emerging from the space of awareness, dissolving back into it. An emptiness of space taking on form, and yet the form being nothing other than a configuration of that space. and the form being empty of anything other than space. A relative interpretation of emptiness as form, form as emptiness, apart from form there is no emptiness, apart from emptiness there is no form. Observe closely, is this true or not? Attend closely, especially to the body, which, after all, is in the center of your physical universe. His appearances arising here of earth, water, fire, and air. Are they any more yours than colors and shapes that you perceive, sounds that you hear? Are they anything more than phenomena arising in the space of awareness, Dissolving back into that space. Is there something malleable here? Can you loosen your grip? Hold them less closely. Simply observe them as phenomena, with no owner. Simple phenomena. Some final concluding comments on this practice in broader context. And that it nowadays, especially as it has become popularized and to some considerable extent commodified, and it can't be helped. I mean, people have to rent meditation halls, they have to pay for airline tickets, meditation teachers have to, have to make a living, so in a way you have to charge. Uh, but it does get commodified too overwhelmingly. It's almost always the case. And then it's a, it's a buyer's market, and that is you better offer something people want to listen to. If you offer, let's say, I'll, I'm going to give a week-long retreat on the ten, the ten non-virtues, and I'm going to really unpack them. Come one, come all. <laughs> Lots of luck with that one. So what sells? Dzogchen sells really well. It does. It's so cool. So weekend Dzogchen, one week Dzogchen. You know? And and I do it. I'm going to go from here to Australia. And I mean they have a one week on Dzogchen. And and I say that without embarrassment. People requested it. I'm happy to offer it. There's one beautiful short text by Duju Rinpoche. Gives the view, meditation, way of life. I'm going to do it. I will contextualize it. And some people listening to Dzogchen, they say, I really like that. And they may have no teachings at all, or none that actually got in on the teachings of the perfection of wisdom, teachings of emptiness, Madhyamaka, just Dzogchen, but I really like it. Is it possible, if you've not had any really rigorous training in Madhyamaka, perfection of wisdom, teachings of emptiness, is it possible to to receive teachings just on Dzogchen and gain realization of rikpa? Is it possible? There's a a correct answer, and the answer is yeah, it's possible. It is possible. For people of very sharp faculties. It is possible. It happens. Yeah, It is possible. On the other hand, if you're not a person of sharp faculties, and this was from his holiness, again, uh, it was when we, when we were in Brisbane last summer, or winter, or whenever it was. <laughs> southern Hemisphere time. I think it was October or so. So spring. We we're having, were having lunch together. It was a marvelous lunch. A number of people were there. And, and then when he got up, he just spoke to me briefly about Dzogchen and just made this comment. You know, if you don't have realization of emptiness, to realize Dzogchen is almost impossible. So if you're practicing Dzogchen and say, never mind all that teaching on my and so forth, then the chances are, unless you're a person of very sharp faculties, you're not really practicing Dzogchen, but then you're not practicing anything else either. Because there's not anything else. It's a false fact only of Dzogchen which means you're not getting that benefit, but you're not getting benefit from any of the other teachings because you're not practicing them. Kind of simple, right? Then we have extraordinary teachings by some extraordinary teachers. on, For example, six yogas of Naropa. I received those teachings by an extraordinary master way back in 1978. Stage of completion practices. I mean, incredibly profound. I say that with only faith geshe invited this great, I mean, accomplished yogi to teach us this. And, and I was translating for him. The words were coming out my mouth. Out of the, out of the, what, out of the mouth of babes. You know? But I, got, I think I got the words right. And afterwards, I went to geshe and said, geshe those are incredible teachings. Should we practice them now? He said, no, no way. You're not ready for those teachings. He was the one that invited the lama. Yes. said, why don't you to have the seeds? Why don't you to have the seeds? But meanwhile, get back to your practice. That's for manana manana, later later, you know. But if one says no no, I don't want those Sutrayana teachings. That's for ordinary people, you know. Sutrayana people. The six yo- I'm a six yogas of Naropa person. I like those teachings. Is it possible to realize emptiness, to gain profound realization, without teachings on Madhyamaka perfection of wisdom? The answer is yes. If you're a very sharp faculties. And if you're not, then you're just going to go be going through a routine. You won't really be practicing Sikh yogas because you're not capable. But you won't be practicing anything else because you're not practicing anything else. The same goes for Chu. It's a marvelous practice. It's a deep practice. Could you, without having a solid grounding in the teachings of emptiness, perfection of wisdom, just practicing chu, could, could you have realization of emptiness? You know the answer now. Yes if you're a person of very sharp faculties. And if not, you're just engaging in a very cool ritual that you may like a lot. But then you're not practicing teachings on emptiness, and you're not really practicing chu if you're not really prepared for it. Stage of generation. This is again directly from His Holiness. Stage of generation, dissolving everything, emptiness arising with divine pride, pure vision, the mandala, your deity, hopefully a whole bunch of hands, you know. Is that stage regeneration practice if you've not realized emptiness? His Holiness said, no, it's more like a cartoon. <laughs> if you've not realized emptiness, what's the point of thinking, I'm a big bull with lots of arms? You know, or I'm a beautiful naked lady, look at my boobs. You know. <gasps> really, what part of that is profound? If you've not realized emptiness, it's just a cartoon. It's a play. It's a visualization. It's a dance. Very cool, maybe fun, really, guys, you give cool spiritual feeling. But if you've not realized emptiness, could you in principle practice stage regeneration and realize emptiness? You now, know, now you know the answer. Yeah, if you're a person of very sharp faculties. And if you're not, you're just going through a very rich, potentially very meaningful ritual for which you're not getting the benefit because you're not prepared. It's only to say you must have some genuine insight, some real, at least real understanding of emptiness. Otherwise that whole stage regeneration is just it's just a, a light show. Rich with incredible symbolism, but it's still just a light show. Because there you are thinking, in my case, here I am. I'm a Stanford PhD, and oh, by the way, I'm also a Vajrasattva. Vajrasattva now, by the way, has a PhD from Stanford. <laughs> Not a state university. This is a real special Vajrasattva. A private university, best on the West Coast. This must be a special Vajrasattva. I mean, it's absurd, right? It's absurd. Then some years ago, I read a, an article, it's quite a critical article, by Tanasarubhiku. He's an American monk, good scholar, reads very fluent Pali, good scholar. He's done a lot of good translation work. I think, I don't think I've ever met him, but I know a number of his students. And he wrote an article, it was published in tricycle one of the Buddhist journals. And he was saying, he was comparing the teachings on Satipatthana, the core Vipassana practice in the Theravada tradition, to the teachings on Madhyamaka, teachings on emptiness. I didn't find it fair, but I found it useful. And then he said, you know, all that stuff about emptiness and all the reasonings and syllogisms and so forth is all a very nice, interesting head trip. But who's really getting benefit from that? Who, upon really reflecting upon the teaching of emptiness, who's actually finding their mental afflictions go down? And I think from his impression, it really wasn't very effective. It was just like really brilliant philosophy, but are your mental afflictions craving, hostility, delusion, arrogance, jealousy, actually going down now that you've had teachings on Madhyamaka? And if the answer is yes, good. And if the answer is not, then what's the point of all that debating and being so smart and giving all the syllogisms and beating other people in debate? If it's not touching your mental afflictions, so is the arrow striking the target? And I think he was making a valid observation that in many cases it does not. And that's just a true statement. I mean, I've hung out with the Galupas for a long time, and there are marvelous Galupa Geshe's and yogis. I mean, they're really spectacular. And there are other ones who are very knowledgeable scholars and can teach very, with great eloquence, articulate, precise, and so forth. No experience at all. You know? I mean, that's true, and I'm not pointing any person. That would be just being judgmental, but it's a true statement. That you can be, and you can be a professor of Buddhist studies and write big books on Madhyamaka philosophy, and the arrow never strikes the target. But you can get a full professorship and endowed chair and all that. Look at me, I'm a hotshot Buddhist philosopher. And they never they didn't even get, they didn't even shoot in the direction of the target. So it's interesting these four applications of mindfulness. Because it's coming right back to where we live. And that is, do we on occasion apprehend that which is by nature impermanent as being permanent? Does that ever happen? Right? Do we ever apprehend something that is not a true source of happiness as being a true source of happiness? Do we ever apprehend, grasp onto something that's not truly I or mine as being exactly that, I or mine? And do we suffer or do we have our mental afflictions, craving, hostility and so forth, being aroused independent upon those delusions, those ways of misapprehending reality? Does that happen or not, right? So here, this is kind of like, well, but this is where I live. This is where I live. My interpersonal relationships, my job, my work, my possessions, and so forth, this is where I live. And to what extent am I, am I suffering unnecessarily because of misapprehending the nature of reality? So I think Tanah Robiku was, on the one hand, I think he had an inadequate appreciation. This was years ago, so maybe no, it's no longer true. But judging by that article, I would say at that time, he had an inadequate appreciation of the cases in which teachings on Madhyamaka really do work, and spectacularly. But he'd need to step outside of the the Theravada cocoon and spend some time with Tibetans. People like Genlam Rimba, people like Jadel Rinpoche, Dingo Genza Rinpoche, Jujun Rinpoche, Ling Rinpoche, and the list goes on and on. These are spectacular individuals. And they have profoundly benefited. By those teachings of an emptiness, that he was kind of dismissing as an intellectual trip. Okay, we all have our limitations. Maybe he doesn't have it any longer, or maybe he was sim- simply making a point that this is a danger. If you get totally caught up in philosophy as philosophy, it may never strike the target. In which case, that's a valid point, right? So here we are in these four applications of mindfulness, right where we live, and the teachings are simply say, pay closer attention, and not just with bare attention, but with wise, discerning, intelligent attention. And use the philosophy, like a carpenter uses his tool tool chest, use the philosophy to skin away or to peel away, to cut away the dead skin of all the junk we're projecting on other people, the environment, and ourselves. And see what's left over when we're simply observing clearly, nakedly, with discerning mindfulness, what's real. And what are these mere phenomena that are rising independent upon causing it? And then I'll ask a final question. If you've not achieved shamatha, and you venture into these four applications of mindfulness, could you achieve liberation? Could you achieve liberation? And the answer is yes. (laughs) On occasion, remember Bahia. He just heard the teachings. And this occurred on other occasions, too. Read the Pali Canon. People come to the Buddha, they receive teachings, and at the end of the teaching, they become stream-enterer, which means they've gained direct realization of nirvana. In other words, it can happen. Tsongkhapa says this, that by way of vipassana, you may achieve shamatha. And if you're extremely ripe, very, very sharp faculties, by way of vipassana, that may just pull shamatha right into it, and you may simultaneously realize Union of Shamatha Vipassana. That's for very, very sharp faculties. <laughs> and so if, if you have very sharp faculties, you may be able to practice just vipassana. And by that unveil shamatha, shamatha just springs up, unifies with vipassana, and you gain direct realization. Muzzle tough. <laughs> it could happen. Right? Bear in mind, we go way back to Dujum Lingba's teachings. Stare into space for two weeks you may realize Rikpa. In which case, skip all of the preceding stages, shamatha and vipassana, and skip tekchut, and go directly to Tuttgall. Could happen. Hope so. But if it doesn't, you're not going to get there just by staring at space for six weeks, or for six years, or for 6,000 years, thinking maybe if I just sit here long enough, I'll become really sharp faculties. No, I think it's called spaced out. (laughs) So this is why then, for those of us in my camp who are of extraordinarily dull faculties, then step by step actually is a really good idea. And then you see, and this is so important, then you see is your practice that you're engaging in from day to day is the arrow striking the target. We're suffering because of our own mental afflictions. Right. So if we're practicing dharmates to get those mental afflictions to soften, to attenuate, so we suffer less, we're happier, and the mind is more virtuous. And so if you're practicing and you're not finding your mental afflictions are subsiding, and you're not finding virtues are increasing, and you're not suffering less, and you're not finding greater genuine happiness, you might want to shift your practice so that the arrows start striking the target. Because life is short. These are the words of my teachers. These are not my words. I have nothing to offer. If I offer anything valuable, then you know it's not coming from me. I'm speaking actually seriously. If I offer anything of value, it's not coming from me. A joke now. Sometimes a joke, that will be mine. But then you know how my jokes are. They're pretty corny. (laughs) So there's a question here that dovetails from this. This is from Alonzo. There's Alonzo, there he is. So when making progress along shamatha, your attention improves. What should we expect to happen if we correctly practice the four applications of mindfulness? So, as I said, that just dovetails beautifully here. So let's just look at it in two ways. Excellent question. How about just achieving shamatha? Let's just go, you know, go to the end of the road. Because there's an end of the road. You've, have you achieved shamatha or not? You've achieved it if you've achieved access to the first jhana, and your mind is dissolved into the substrate consciousness. That's the end of the road. That's it. You can go into the jhanas beyond that, but that's achieving shamatha. If you achieve shamatha, okay, what's that, what's that good for? What it's really good for is those five augurations have gone dormant, ill will, etc. We've been through those. These qualities of luminosity, of clarity, of stability, incredible. And this carries through over in between sessions as well as during sessions. And you have these five dhyana factors, coarse investigation, subtle analysis, bliss, sense of well-being, and the unification of mind. You have that right at your fingertips. You can apply them as you wish. In other words, you have... You've really become mature in the higher training of samadhi. Wisdom, karuna, Shila, ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. You've really nailed samadhi. You have a spectacularly balanced mind. You're extraordinarily sane. And it feels good. It feels good. That's the symptom of having a very, very balanced mind. All right. Now, of course, that's going to take a lot of work. Along the path of gradually developing Shamatha, then you know. If the practice is working, it's transparent. You don't need to ask me, or go to the Dalai Lama, or look at some great book. Is your practice of shamatha working or not? You should know without consulting anybody now, because the question is simply, are you in body-mind feeling more at ease, relaxed, loose? Is your mind becoming more stable, composed, unified? And is your mind becoming clearer and clearer? That's basically it. There's a lot of derivative benefits. But if that's not happening, your shamatha practice isn't working. And if that is happening, then your shamatha practice is working. And that means it's got to be good. Okay. So now we look at the four applications of mindfulness. Listen, again, go to the end of the road, just like we did with shamatha. Okay, what's it like to achieve shamatha? What's it like, if you go to the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha actually says if you practice this for one week, you may achieve nirvana. If not for one week, then two weeks. And he goes on like, wow, super Super sharp faculties, incredibly sharp faculties, very sharp faculty. Okay, where do I fit in? Oh, oh, down there. Okay. But he's saying that as a result of practicing these four up-close applications of mindfulness, you can achieve nirvana in this lifetime. That's what he says. You read it right there at the end of the, of the sutta, the Buddha's great discourse. So, what's it, what's it coming to the end of the road? On this practice of vipassana within this, shravakayana within this or the Theravada, one school of Shravakayana, is that your mental afflictions, craving hostility, delusion, and all of the derivatives, they are not only attenuated, they're not only subdued, they are eradicated together with their seeds irreversibly forever and ever and ever. In other words, you're way beyond sane. You are really free of mental afflictions and all of their consequences. So that's what that's for. You never fall back into delusion you're irreversibly free okay then well how about back on the path so where we are today without having achieved shamata without having you know glorious realizations but practicing and doing doing so intelligently well informed what can we expect what are some of the signs that this practice is working well this is all about insight it's not simply cultivating relaxation stability vividness we know what that's for that was shamata This is about taking whatever qualities of stability and clarity, a calm, composed, and then clear attention, and applying these to our lives, our physical presence, physical world, then we'll see feelings, mental states, and so forth. And so what are some of the effects? That we are seeing more clearly. We are waking up to what's actually happening, as opposed to what we assumed was happening, what we imagined was happening, what we believed was happening, speculated was happening, and so forth and so on. We're just getting a clearer and clearer sense of what's actually going on. So this shines a brighter light on our own lives and our interrelationship with other people. So there is, we see it for ourselves, a growth of wisdom, a growth of insight, a clarity of experience, a decreasing of delusion. And then if delusion is indeed the root mental afflictions, then we should find, without being highly realized, shamatha and all of that, we should find for ourselves that the derivative mental afflictions springing from delusion, misapprehension of reality, taking the impermanent as permanent, and so forth, that the derivative mental afflictions, such as craving and attachment, they're decreasing. They're decreasing. Crucial point here, came up in one of the personal conversations today, it's so important, and not so obvious, and that is, as our craving hyphen attachment for people diminishes, Which it really should, that's the idea. The idea would be have none. That would be the ideal. No attachment in the Buddhist sense of the term. Now, I'm I'm aware, in psychology, the word attachment has a different meaning. And it's not referring to a mental affliction. So we honor that, it's a different definition. So we're not debating with that. And I won't unpack it, that's another trip. But in Buddhism, attachment is defined as a mental affliction. It's rooted in self-centeredness. It's giving rise to I-it relationship. Treating the other person as an instrument for your own happiness, right? So the ideal is that we're free of that entirely, that there's no attachment or craving for anyone, not your children, not your parents, not your spouse, not your relative, nobody, zero, that's the ideal. So one might wonder, what, oh, but then you'd be, some co- you'd be so cold, you'd be so aloof, you'd be so distant, you wouldn't have attachment for anyone. And that's a complete conflation of loving kindness with self-centered attachment. In fact, it really can, and and sometimes it happens. You didn't say this, but I am responding to something you didn't say. Does it ever happen? Does it ever happen that people go very gung-ho of just taking their hatchet to attachment and craving and all of that, just whacking away and sledgehammering it, bludgeoning it to death, and when they finished, they feel this total equanimity for everybody, and that is don't give a darn about anybody. Free of attachment. I've seen too many photos like that. Looked a little bit sad to me. I have no attachment. One really can throw out baby with bathwater by mixing up affection and warmth and kindness and loving kindness with attachment. If you mix the two up, you throw out one, you throw out the other. Right? So contrary to that, if one has that sharp discerning intelligence, you see, attachment is really all about craving and attachment about one's own desires, and loving kindness is all about one's caring, one's affection, one's warmth for the other person, or sentient being whoever it may be. See, there's absolutely how do you say, you can throw out one the other one, it's not only undamaged, it's freed. It's freed. It can come to full blossom. Now your loving kindness can go supernova. Be boundless, immeasurable, because, exactly because, it's no longer hampered, constrained, locked in by self-centered attachment. Every time that we find my loving kindness goes this far, but then not that far, it's only because of self-centered attachment. So knock down the barriers of self-centered detachment. And then loving kindness just flows in all directions. And the best thing is to see this in action. So I just received an email this morning from one of my students who recently attended teachings by Kandola. Extraordinary woman. She's one of my lamas, based in Dharamsala. Being in the presence of this woman. She's rather young, mid-thirties or so. Being in the presence of this woman. Then you see, ah, unconditional love is real. True. It's not a syllogism. It's not being articulate and really smart and all that kind of stuff. It's like, whoa, I get it. So it's helpful. We still have such people alive today. Seek them out. It's all very good to get good teachings. I think I can offer good teachings. I I do my best. Even better. Or as a compliment. Find people who have just embodied these qualities. And then you see, whoa, those teachings were true. Right there. Here's a woman with zero attachment. That was my sense. I couldn't believe otherwise. I, could, I, tried, I didn't try very hard. But if one tries to imagine, what would it be like for her to have a lot of attachment? It's just nothing comes to mind. You know, like She's incapable of that. And though for any man, she's a rather attractive woman, but if any man like this one, if even the notion of, oh, she's sexually attractive, comes to mind, it goes like, Ugh. dies on the vine. It really dies on the vine. I know I for myself. I, mean, I still have I still have mental affliction. But I couldn't. Not with that one. Just like, forget about it. So to see that, then you see, okay, here's just immeasurable loving kindness and no attachment. Very helpful. So does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. So really, it should work. The arrow should strike the target happier, more serene, more balanced, emotionally balanced, clearer, more authentic interpersonal relationships, more inner calm, greater clarity, less guilt, less anxiety, less suffering altogether. That's got to be good. Okay? Good. Maybe one more. This is from Mike. In the mindfulness of body meditation, it seemed... You are implying that all perceived sense forms are perceived to be in flux. It seems to me that some of the visual forms are not perceived to be in flux. Am I seeing incorrectly? It's a very good point. This has been raised by other people as well. It's quite true. Quite true. And that is, when I just look at the, the color, the, again, the appearances, bear in mind what we're attending to, is just the appearances. But when I'm atten- attending to this slate floor, it's actually interesting. Insofar as my attending to a slate floor, the slate, which is made of those molecules, I'd have to say the level of impermanence there of those molecules is so subtle that I can't, it's subtle impermanence. I can't see it. I, it it's very subtle. A, a person with an electron microscope or looking at the molecular or the atomic level, then you can see it's fizzing down there, for sure. That's true. But can we see this with the naked eye, the actual the agitation, the rising fall of elementary particles? No, that's just too subtle. We can't see it. So quite true, on the one hand. On the other hand, what we're attending to here is not slate, but as the Buddha said, in the scene let there be just the scene. Well, what seen is visual appearances. Do the visual appearances, are they dead? Static, inert. Not the slate. That's tough. That's made out of really tough stuff. Very stable there. That's why you can step on it and not slip through. But the appearances arising in my alaya. The appearance is arising in the space of awareness. You might just check. That do not look all that stable to me. It looks to me more like just some colored energy. <laughs> but either way, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. When it comes to sound, it's dead obvious. Comes to tackle sensations, pretty obvious. Pretty obvious. And then we'll be moving on next week, sneak preview. We have about one minute left. And I'll get to these. Lord willing. <laughs> <laughs> we get to feelings. That gets really interesting. Feelings, pleasure, pain, indifference. Arising in the body, that'll be Monday through Wednesday. Feelings arising in the mind, happy, sad, and neutral. Feelings arising in the body and mind. <coughs> not only localized in space, like within my body, but also and we'll see this, because this is piggybacking on or launched upon the basis of close application of mindfulness to the body, but you know that's not just the body, it's all the sensory fields. So when I'm looking at something and I'm looking at something and I'm experiencing pleasure, ah, that's also the body the body in the broad sense of the term. So Feeling arising with respect to visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, and of course, the tactile. Observing feelings arising. That's quite interesting. Static or not static. Unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, whatever. That gets quite interesting. Mental ones, especially. Can you see anything static there? When a person is clinically depressed, I think there's enormous interface here with clinical psychology. When a person is just heavily depressed, clin- clinically depressed, Chronically depressed. I think it's very easy to feel it just moved in and it's permanent. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if you look closely and not just try to go like this. I don't want it. I don't want it. Please go away. I can't stand it anymore. But when you say, okay, depression, come out and show yourself. When you look at it, see whether you see. This will be next week. See whether you see anything permanent. Stable, unchanging, quite interesting. And of course for pleasure also. And then we get to the mind, oh la la, of course. Of course. Yeah. So we have tomorrow. Tomorrow. You got this place. And we have only seven weeks left. So if you have to do things outside, then you have to do things outside. But if you don't, I'd really encourage you to take full advantage of this incredible place and see what it's like to set up a one-day retreat for your own discipline and do what you love to do. Engage in the practice you'd really like to. Let your whole day be an expression of loving kindness to yourself. What's the nicest thing you can do for yourself? And then do that. Okay. And if you think it's going off and eating ice cream and lying on the beach, then go for it. If that's the nicest thing you can do for yourself, Go for that. Come back Monday. (laughs) Or not, as you wish. Good. Enjoy your Sunday. See you tomorrow.